0: The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. This is Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hardim. Toronto's News, Today's Talk, 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome to the weekend, my friends. Back to school, back to work, back to... To reality, and it's okay. It's okay. So what we do, eh? Well, I will say the month of September continued in a pseudo bearish fashion tone. Interest rates continuing to rise here in Canada. We just absorbed another 75 basis points or three quarters percent hike. Probably another one in the in the cards or on the table for the remainder of the year here at home and in the United States. We're going to hear of another rate hike uh, later in the month. Rising interest rates, never good for tech stocks, especially those tech companies that uh, are newer in the uh, industry and as such uh, perhaps are not yet profitable. Many tech stocks that that fly high, well in advance of making money for anticipation of making money. A lot of math behind the scenes in terms of valuing those companies, but very dependent on interest rates. And interest rates go up. Uh, They're considered long-dated bonds. Uh, those stocks, that is, those tech stocks, they go down the most. Uh, our good friend, Michael Graham, uh, when, when it's a bull market in tech, he's a star at the party. And when it's a bear market in tech, he's left at the front door unable to enter. Uh, am I correct, Mike, with that statement? <laughs>
2: well, I think we can help investors uh, in all phases of the market. Well, you know, And we're trying to kind of right now identify the companies that we think have like long-term staying power. You know, really well capitalized, uh, you know, good, sustainable, competitive advantage. We think those are the companies that will endure through these downturns and lead us out the other
1: side. I'm just talking, I just mean, thought, you're getting serious on me at the start of the show here. We've got we to start light, <laughs> engage them, and then we get into the real meat of the discussion. Um, and so, again, I say, as a tech analyst, I know this to be true. Look, if you were a pod analyst, Michael Graham, three years ago, the party would be all around you. Leave the bong aside. Let's talk stock if you were in the pop business. Uh, the same happened. I remember in the, in the go-go days of technology in the late 90s, if you had anything to do with technology, you were the star at the party. At the same time, if you were a gold bull, <laughs> that's what people said to you. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. Uh, it really is incredible how moods swing so much. But, so again, uh, let's get serious here. Without question, uh, long term investors, uh, should look for opportunities like this, uh, when the party goes really cold and there's plenty of seats available. I uh, do not buy into a market where it's standing room only. Uh, lots of seats available in the land of tech. Michael Graham, uh, one of our managing directors at can, of course, tough intro, but you know, he's tough. He can handle it. Uh, he covers uh, internet, gaming, digital assets. Uh, why don't we start with, uh, perhaps, call it entertainment, call it a tax on the poor. Um, a saving sector this year in the world of traditional media has been gaming. Uh, gaming, I, I drive across the Gardner Expressway and billboard upon billboard talking about gaming. And your DraftKings is being well advertised now here in Toronto. Um, sector seen a lot of competition, a lot of uh, opening up, uh, in terms of states, in terms of jurisdiction, yet the market loved gaming stocks. What two years ago couldn't give a darn about gaming stocks right here, right now. Uh, so, Michael, what do you start with? Speaking to that, is there still an opportunity to make money in gaming? A preferred ways to invest in the space. What kind of time horizon you need to make money in your opinion?
2: Yeah, great. It's, and it's always interesting because you know we we actually cover two types of gaming uh, here. You know, one is Gambling, like you mentioned, Wolf, and then the other is video games. And you know, um, we obviously you're asking about the gambling part of things with, with DraftKings and the online sports betting and the online casino business that they have. And um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that stock hadn't worked um, there, were, there when when the U.S. first started rolling out. You know, the launch in New Jersey a few years ago, and then several other states because it does go on a state by state. Uh, basis, um, because the laws in each state are different. Uh, you know what you saw was um, a lot of competitors piling in and really crowding out the advertising market for new users. And so, user acquisition costs for all these companies were going way up, and it was just getting more expensive for everyone to get new gamblers in the door. Uh, a lot of that competitive um, intensity has has fallen away a little bit and that's part of the reason we're bullish on DraftKings because we know that the company, um, you know, a lot of the competitors are coming at this business with a land-based casino business that they need to protect, and we like DraftKings because we view it as a digital disruptor. Uh, They only have the digital business, and so, um, you know, the investors in DraftKings want the company to invest heavily in marketing and grow their customer base aggressively, and that's what they're doing. One of the reasons why the stock has been working as of late um, is because uh, when they just reported Q2 results, they were able to give good evidence that in their more mature markets like New Jersey, uh, the, 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 the marketing intensity was coming down a little bit. They were able to get more customers in at, at better rates. And one other thing to mention on that one is um, well, actually two things. One, the first one is that they've invested a ton in new technology wow that enables them to put new bet types out on the table. So the best example is same-game parlay bets, which um, they're going to have in place for the NFL season here coming up. That's going to be a big deal. And then um, the other thing is the state of California, obviously the largest state in the U.S., uh, has a voter um, referendum on the ballot for November to legalize online sports betting. And if that happens, uh, obviously that's going to be a big deal.
1: Um, and then let's pivot over to uh, another sector again, front and center. Uh, it's a two horse race. Um, I'm speaking Uber. I'm speaking left. Uh, anecdotally, well, what I'm learning about that space is drivers are not being compensated fairly. Uh, and they seem to be quite frustrated. I think with the, the, uh, the job, the gig, if you want to call it that uh, being a driver, uh, they, they tend not to know how much they are going to get from what I learned uh, they they tend not to know how much they're being paid per ride until after the fact. Uh, often they're they're they I think being paid you know eight seven eight dollars to take you know me on a twenty minute ride. Wear and tear on the vehicle, insurance, um, shortage of cars, uh, increasing the, the, the cost base for their capital investment. That doesn't seem doesn't seem to be making for a very good long term business model. Um, can you speak to that in terms of, you know, without drivers, they have no business. Their, their business is, or their product is their driver, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Without them, they have nothing. So uh, speak to that, Mike, and uh, then speak to us again for for the investable theses behind Uber and or Lyft. Well, you raise
2: a great point on the drivers. Um, you know, both Uber and Lyft, neither, neither stock has really worked since their IPOs. And, you know, initially you know, and their IPOs were four or five years ago. Initially, it was because both companies were unprofitable, burning a lot of cash, and um, investors really didn't like that. So they both made great strides in shoring up their expense structures. Now both are profitable and and exhibiting good degrees of operating leverage. And then, then we hit COVID, and, of course, the demand dried up and the supply dried up of drivers because everyone was staying home. And that's really starting to um, loosen up quite a bit now. Your point on drivers is an excellent one because um, when we came out of COVID, you know, the demand side of the network, the riders, the passengers recovered more quickly than the drivers. And That's the supply side of the network. And so the company um, had done a lot of things to motivate drivers to come back into the fold. Uh, one of those was subsidizing drivers. So, You know, they would let drivers basically guarantee them a certain amount of wage per hour. And if that didn't come from natural demand, then Uber and Lyft were subsidizing that. That's kind of, you know, run its course now and they're sort of back to normal operations. But they did just institute, both companies just instituted new features for the drivers. And this just happened a month ago in Q2, Um, new features for the drivers that um, that allow the drivers to... Um, see where the passenger is going before the driver accepts the fare and also um, to see what the approximate fare is going to be. You know, over time, I do think that um, you could see a little bit of pressure on um, the, uh, the percentage of the fares that Uber and Lyft keep, i.e. they'll probably share a little more with the drivers. Um, but, you know, that driver supply is definitely super important and it's something both companies are focused on
1: well and Jack this morning and uh, good evening my good friend and partner in success um, but this morning you mentioned a supply issue around Airbnb uh, Michael Graham of course covers that stock if you're just tuning in' hi fi radio we got Michael Graham on the line one of our senior equity analysts covering covering internet gaming and digital assets uh, so Jack uh, let me let me part a over to you uh, Airbnb uh, supply and demand uh I'm going to throw it in the bounce back then to Michael. Sure, thanks, Wolf, and thanks, Mike, for joining us. Um, yeah, travel
3: similar to Uber and Lyft. Um, you really have, I, I think, a lot of demand outstripping supply, uh, and one of the big problems that Airbnb is having right now is actually being able to, uh, you know, get places to rent on the market. So maybe Mike could speak to that, and uh, I guess his investment case and, and thesis for uh, Airbnb going forward. All right. Well, thank you, Jack. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right that. Um, the,
2: the, the network for Airbnb is also supply-constrained. Um, you know, what you've seen is a great amount of demand coming onto that platform from uh, basically a result of coming out of COVID where people can work remotely now. It's sort of a work-from-anywhere environment. Um, and so that has really generated tons of demand and now Airbnb needs to return to focus more on getting more hosts onto the platform, getting more properties onto the platform. And they're investing a lot in doing that, including making it easier for the host to onboard and marketing to potential hosts about the income, you know, possibilities. So we think Airbnb has a great, strong position, a great brand. And, um, you know, we have, we have uh, you know, high expectations for that company and that stock as well.
1: Hi Fi Radio, 640 Toronto, a show about money. Wolfgang Klein, your host. Jack Hartle, producer and co host of The Show Partner. We are two portfolio managers for one. Great deal. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break, get right back to the show.
0: Let's take a break. Wolf and Jack will continue their in depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi Fi Radio on 640, 640 Toronto. Toronto. the innocent can never last. Wake me up when September ends. Welcome back, my friends. Right
1: in the middle of it. The good news is Labor Day or post Labor Day, the day after Labor Day, is behind us. Two worst days of my year the day after New Year's and the day after Labor Day. They're behind us. Uh, indeed. Okay, uh, more good news, my good friends. If you were frothing for some IPOs a couple of years ago, just had to get into some IPOs but couldn't, and I said this last week, I'm going to share it with you again and try to keep it in mind in the future. More often than not, when a company goes public, six months, eight months, 18 months later, you get a chance to buy the stock low, below IPO price. Michael Graham, Managing Director, Senior Equity Analyst, Covering internet gaming and digital assets with Canaccord. Just raised the point about um, was it uh, Lyft or Uber? I'm looking at Airbnb right now. Uh, It it too looks like it's trading below IPO price. Last week, Michael, I mentioned this another stock that Canaccord covers Rivian Automotive. Stock, I think, first day of trading was 60. Post IPO, first day trading was 60. Currently available. To the uh, <laughs> to the buyer out there at 36 bucks, it was 31 bucks last week, so it is remarkable when you get these names below IPO price. Um, but I, I want to throw it to Jack because he wants to talk digital assets with you, Michael. But Jack, I want you to uh, very eloquently tell the audience your 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 theory this morning that you got from Grantham about previous high prices and how important or not they are to current prices and how they can sort of throw you a skew when purchasing a stock. Yeah, thanks, Wolf. And Jeremy Grampton came out with a piece, penned a piece last
3: week. Um, and this is, a, I'm to say, a very bearish piece, talking about bear markets and how to invest in them. And uh, people get anchored to previous prices. They get, you know, they, they look at a, a Rivian trading, you know, in the hundreds, and then, and then they see it trading at 50. And again, it's a great company. We do have, I believe, a buy rating on it, but the, they think it's a good deal. And I, I'm going to say the best example of that, Wolf, uh, for and all Canadian investors can it relate to it is Nortel. You know, it was trading at 120 back in 2000, got to 100, people thought it was a good deal. Then it got to 60, thought it was a good deal. So just be careful if that is the only analysis that you have on your stock, looking how much or how far down it is in a bear market because fundamentally the company could be broken. So you gotta do a lot more work than just looking at the price. But it really relates to investor psychology, sentiment uh, and enthusiasm, which is tied to the IPO uh, conversation that you just had. Um, Uh, Doing a little pivot to crypto assets, Uh, you can obviously look at the enthusiasm and sentiment around there in 2020, 2021. People were going around saying, you know, if you're just investing in stocks, have fun staying poor. 2022 (laughs) has been very (laughs) difficult. It's been very difficult for the crypto assets. But I'm going (laughs) to say there's some some signs of life out there. So uh, Ethereum starting to wake up. Uh, Our technical analysts highlighted it just recently. And um, it's showing some relative strength in a bear market. So maybe uh, Mike could speak to the, the technical aspect of Ethereum and also the fundamental changes that have just happened this week. Hmm. Yeah, sounds good. This is
2: a, this is an exciting topic and, you know, we could
3: spend hours
2: on it. But, you know, essentially what we saw with crypto um, as we um, were getting ready to um, enter this latest sort of bear market was that crypto had its own cycle separate from equities. Um, You know, the things that were impacting prices and crypto were crypto specific. Uh, What we saw in the bear market was investors lumped crypto assets in with equities and the correlations between the trading correlations between crypto and equities shot way up to levels we had never seen before. So at this moment, um, most investors seem to be looking at crypto through the same lens with which they're looking at equities. Um, That said, you're right to bring up um, the fundamental changes that are happening with Ethereum. So in crypto, obviously, the biggest asset is Bitcoin. Um, That's digital gold. A lot of people, you know, look at it as a safe store of value, as an inflation hedge. Um, uh, You can't really do much with Bitcoin, you know, other than, Um, park your money there and hope that it acts as a good inflation hedge. However, with Ethereum, it's completely different. Ethereum is um, the network that powers everything else in crypto besides Bitcoin, essentially. And, um, you know, it has historically traded in lockstep with Bitcoin. However, uh, Ethereum is going through a major upgrade literally as we speak. Uh, The upgrade started on this past Tuesday, uh, and it's scheduled to finish on September 15th. And this is the upgrade um, from what they call a proof-of-work blockchain to a proof-of-stake blockchain. We don't need to get into the technical details other than to say that proof-of-stake exhibits a 99% reduction in energy consumption relative to proof-of-work. You might have heard a lot about uh, Bitcoin using a lot of energy. Um, and then the second thing that it does is it makes the network much more efficient in terms of being able to process more transactions. So we put out a big report on Tuesday on Ethereum. Uh, highly recommend that your that your readers take a look at it. But it really lays out kind of the fundamental underpinnings. We compare it to uh, AWS and, and, and Google Cloud Platform in terms of like what it could mean in terms of outsourced computing. And we're really excited about this topic. We think it's going to be something that we're going to be talking about more and more here over the next several years.
3: So, so with it being a much more efficient, uh, I, I'm going to say, a crypto asset, um, what are the net benefits of it for the for the real economy? Because I think that's what you're speaking to. You, you mentioned that Bitcoin really, all you can do is hold on to it and hopefully someone pays more for it, similar to gold. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot more utility that um, Ethereum has uh, it's and applications in the real economy.
2: Yeah, it's it definitely true. And you know, the whole um, promise of blockchain technology, the whole promise of crypto, is to uh, install uh, trust as a computing primitive into computer networks, so that if you transfer value, if you transfer assets, um, there is a common distributed ledger. Uh, that everyone has a copy of so it, it, it's pretty impossible for anyone to um, lose their assets it's impossible pretty much for anyone to hack the network unlike say your checking account with your bank um, where number one if there's a problem there you know it's really between you and your bank and number two you know because the bank has your assets captive they can charge you a lot of fees uh, same thing <laughs> everything else. so you know, what we've seen is that Ethereum becomes the backbone of, um, of these new types of networks that enable users to essentially not have to trust one another and be able to transact uh, with very low fees. And um, a lot of the applications that people will use to do this are going to be powered by Ethereum and they're essentially going to pay a small commission to Ethereum, a very small commission to Ethereum for every transaction. Uh, and, you know,
1: that's you know, why the potential market size for Ethereum is so large. Hey, Mike, do you mind pivoting? Because it does tie into uh, the Ethereum. You just taught me something. Uh, Amazon, the stock itself. Uh, Jack and I recently added it into our uh, growth portfolio. And again, going through the research uh, on Amazon, uh, the, the amount of uh, cash flow it generates from its Amazon Web Services is absolutely astounding um does that part of the business have legs and what then is the relationship in your opinion between ethereum uh the cryptocurrency for i call i consider the cryptocurrency for business to business but it's obviously continued to evolve and i I appreciate you continue to educate us on ethereum but what what relationship will it then have with amazon and, and is it a net benefit then to amazon
2: so, um, yeah, so for, for Amazon and Ethereum, you know, it's more of an analogy, like, like they're not really competitors. It's just an analogy that we use to highlight how quickly um, an outsourced computing resource can scale. And, you know, Amazon Web Services did scale very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right to point out that AWS is about half of Amazon revenue, but it is 100% of Amazon's profit pool. Part of the reason for that is continue to run the e-commerce business at break-even as they continue to build out uh, faster and faster delivery capabilities. You know they're going in the big cities from you know three days to two days to one day to same day, and that's not
1: sorry, sorry, Michael. E-commerce is break-even even even at this point.
2: Um, It it, it is. It 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 has it exhibits you know pretty good margins in you know Q4. Uh, and pretty low margins in Q1 and Q2, um, it tends to be profitable, you know, in Q4 and lose money in Q1 and Q2, uh, and that's because they keep ratcheting up um, the investments, and in the U.S., well, uh, the e-commerce business is quite profitable, but internationally, you know, where they're still building aggressively in places like India, um, it, it's not profitable yet. And, um and so, you know, AWS is super important, and that business is, is going gangbusters. Uh, it's the market share leader. It's growing at 30% year in, year out, exhibiting really good margins, and, you know, it doesn't show any signs of slowing. Overall, on Amazon stock, we like it here quite a bit. You know, the stock uh, was um, impacted, obviously, by um, in a positive way by COVID. People were staying home shopping instead of going out shopping, so that was great. Uh, but now um, with the stock having been working through some difficult growth comps from, from COVID here the last couple of quarters, uh, it did impact the stock. The latest Q2 results, they saw a return to growth and sort of like the end of those difficult COVID comps. So that was really good. And, you know, in general,
1: we, we like Amazon quite a bit. You know, growth matters, my friends, when you're investing you want to invest in businesses that are growing that there is no other way to get the share price higher because when a company grows earnings should follow i.e. go higher and that's what you're buying you're buying earnings streams, otherwise known as cash flow streams, when you're investing. No, you're not buying the stock market. You're buying an ownership piece of a business. And, you know, Jack, we, we, we have to remind ourselves, you know, that when you are buying Amazon, you are partnering with Jeff Bezos. When you're buying Brookfield Asset Management, you're partnering with Bruce Flatt. When you buy uh, Apple, you're partnering with Mr. Cook. And, and the list goes on. It's very exciting that we are able to do that. But I also want to remind the audience how important it is when looking at businesses to truly, you know, the math tells you everything, but it doesn't necessarily do it as clearly as you'd like. And therefore having an analyst who truly understands the business can shed light on the math um, and I think that that's critical uh, to success. Um, Mike, we got about 90 seconds for you. Uh, I picked up a good theme today that it's from, from one of our uh, subscribers that Jack and I read daily, and it says look to buy companies that are good and getting better. Uh, do, do any of your covered names stand out when I make that statement? Buy companies that are good and getting better.
2: Yeah, um, definitely. We talked about one of them already, uh, which was DraftKings, I think DraftKings has a great business, and they're just now starting to see a lot of the benefits of some of the investments that they've been making. Um, Another one I would say is Uber, which we already talked about. And then one that I'll throw out that we didn't talk about yet um, was Double Verify. The ticker is DV. Uh, It's a... It's a $5 billion market cap company, so a little bit smaller than the ones we've been talking about, but this is a great uh, name in the digital advertising space that is really doing a good job and and building new products, and the business model
1: is really strong. And the chart Uh, looks amazing, by the way. Right here, the chart actually looks really, really good. Sorry, I might carry on. So, I would, yeah, a
2: really good management team that we've known for a long time through a couple different companies, so... Uh, yeah, okay,
1: it's, also tra- it's also trading below, I think, below IPO price once again. Am I correct on that statement? Uh,
2: yeah, Yes, indeed.
1: Yes, indeed. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, perhaps, my good friend. Look, we're trying to find some value. We're trying to find some deals um, in a bit of a decimated space, which is technology. But when the economy turns, these are the names you want to, be, you want to have a piece of because they will turn aggressively. We continue to do our work. Michael Graham, you're a great partner. I can't thank you enough for your time this weekend. Be safe. Uh, continue with the brilliance, and uh, we'll check in with you next week. I'm going to take a look at the Canadian dollar and dollar bills. Uh, Jeff Blank, our managing director, head of foreign exchange, uh, treasury as well, here at Can Accord. going to spend some time with us talking about the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar and, I guess, interest rates and a whole lot of other things. Stay tuned. It's
0: going to be oh so exciting. I promise. Don't go anywhere. There's more hi-fi radio in a moment. On 640 Toronto. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. I miss the earth so much. Phase. on such a time i'm
1: back, my friends. Hi-Fi Radio, 640 in Toronto. Sir Elton John doing another world tour just in town this week. What a guy. What a brand. What hits. The man and his uh, writer. I almost forget his name. Do uh, you know, you know the, the, the guy who wrote most of Elton John's stuff? What do you guys know? Bernie, know Bernie Toppin. Bernie Toppin. Well, what an amazing partnership with Bernie Toppin. He wrote the big hits for Elton and Elton just put him to put him to music and boy, oh boy, what a great partnership those two gentlemen had um so i i gonna you melton john inc uh, you know the guy is incorporated directly or indirectly there's, there's an opco there's a hold code. um i wonder if he deals in british pounds i wonder if he is, is an american enterprise and I, I share that with you my friends because the u.s dollar is strong on a global basis um, and without question, this is affecting business. Uh, Microsoft complaining that the US dollar has been so strong, it's going to affect their quarterly results significantly. We saw it in such results uh, because they have to, these companies who are American based, have to repatriate Canadian dollars, euro, yen, won, remniby back into US dollars. And when the US dollar is strong, they get less for those currencies when they convert them. Um, I want to tell him John has that same problem. I assume he does. Uh, but, uh, Jeff, you know the currency market best. Uh, you're a managing director and head of foreign exchange at Canaccord. Um, and I hope you're enjoying the new abode on Temperance Street as much as Jack and I are. But uh, let's just talk about the, the the U.S. dollar strength first and foremost. What does it mean to business? What does it mean to markets? What does it mean to our Canadian dollar? Uh,
4: well, Canadian dollar is actually done Like fairly well, down four percent against the U.S. here today. But it puts us as the number one G10 currency um, against the U.S. dollar on a year-to-date basis. So even though Canadian dollar seems weak, uh, if you happen to be traveling to Europe or or the U.K. or Australia, you'll be loving the exchange rates um, because Canada has done well, you know, vis-a-vis the Great British Pound, which is at a 40-year low. I think against the U.S. down around 114. Um, Euro below par, um, with you know the all-time lows of around 83 or whatever it was back in uh, when it was launched, uh, within within reach. Um, great for exporter countries. If you're a Canadian exporter and you receive U.S. dollars, you're happy as a clam. If you're an importer, not so much. Um, foreign investors also doing great if you uh, if you're Canadian investing in U.S. stocks, etc. Um, not so good if you're investing in Japanese yen so there's been a obviously a big move and I've always been you know leaning towards the US dollar strength side but it's really picked up uh, at the pace a lot in the last little while even in the face of um, you know four consecutive 50 basis point hikes by the Reserve Bank of Australia a record 75 basis point hike by the ECB today. Um, Canada has just gone 75 basis points in September you know on top of uh, the 100 they did in July it uh, doesn't seem to be stopping um, the strength of the U.S. dollars. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, most of it, Europe's problem is obviously uh, their their gas situation um, and the stagflation that that's going to bring into the winter. Uh, and I don't see that getting any better. Um, the, the euro actually weakened today after the 75 basis point hike. Um, hmm. I think it's a trend that's going to continue.
1: Uh, Jeff, um, I just came back from Italy, so I want to speak about that first, if I may. Uh, I said this I was in Italy in May. Uh, it seemed like yesterday. Uh, it says, stay with me. It's a beautiful trip, and beautiful trips, they linger in a good way. Uh, Canadian dollar, or I should say the euro. Uh, uh, how many Canadian dollars would you get for one euro, or how many Canadian dollars does it cost to purchase one euro? My guess is 140. I'm probably high. Uh,
4: no, we're around one thirty um, for the euro to buy uh, one.
1: So one today for Canadian,
4: you get a yeah, euro and, and for and
1: the, the, great, the great
4: British pound is one fifty. Wow, so I've 30. got a kid going to school in the UK, so I'm really interested in what the pound does. Ah,
1: I, 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 I do <laughs> empathize. Um, and again, you know, coming back from Italy, you know, people start speaking about how tough the economy is in Europe. I didn't see it in Italy. I saw a busy Rome. I saw a vibrant Sorrento. Now, again, I was going to the tourist hotspots, but I was also early season. Um, so, but there is speak that, you know, Europe has some serious challenges in front of it. Um, and again, this rising interest rate has just begun in Europe. Uh, you know, we're, we're well entrenched in a rate hike trend in North America, but Europe has just begun its rate hike. Uh, what's your call on the European economy? Uh, With their currency being weak, that should certainly help those German exporters. Um, But with the energy crisis that they have upon them, you know that that is a front and center challenge.
4: Yeah, I think um, the impact on industry um, by the cost of natural gas to run their businesses, et cetera, the price of electricity to run their businesses is not good for the European economy. Uh, I think we're seeing that as growth continues to surprise on the downside, and inflation continues to surprise on the upside. So I don't see a lot of positive things coming out of Europe in the next um, in the next little while. And the, ar- the opposite side of that argument is that people say, well, all this is factored in. I don't think it is, um, honestly. Hmm. I'm not sure how you can factor it in. Uh, everybody's been dead wrong so far in terms of where interest rates should be or should have been at this point in time and how everyone's panicking now into massive rate hikes, one right after the other. Uh, and you know everyone's expectations of what the so-called neutral terminal rate is, um, is a moving target as well. So no one even knows how high this needs to go um, to get their goal of, of uh, fighting inflation. And, and all the central bankers have come out and said they will err on the side of a weaker economy to get inflation under control. So the original, I don't know, I think it wasn't even that long ago, three weeks ago, uh, the markets had priced in interest rate cuts by the Fed, for example, um, as we get into 2023 because of the weaker economy, that's no longer the case. So Powell was very adamant at Jackson Hole saying we, we will not um, be looking to cut interest rates anytime soon until inflation is under control. And I just don't see that. I don't see how we're going to get inflation under control with 3% interest rates when inflation is running 9 or 10% in Europe. Uh, UK is probably closer to 15%. Um, I just don't see that being, I don't think we're close yet, to be honest.
1: The show is Hi-Fi Radio. We're talking money. We're talking Canadian dollars. We're talking interest rates. Um, and as we're doing that, uh, Sophia, our producer, is going to queue up and some Tom Petty won't back down because that's what the central banker is telling the market. They're not going to back down from fighting inflation. Maybe they can listen to some Tom Petty to quell your nerve. Um, Jeff uh, look we're gonna, we're gonna stick with the, the theme uh, of European travel uh, I, think, I think I encourage everyone to do some European travel uh, again 130 currency trade not a bad uh, not a bad offer um, but inflation here in Canada when it comes to food we are all talking about it I didn't see food inflation in Europe as well so look we're gonna get to a break. Get right back with our European travels uh, and currency talk with Jeff Blanco, Jack Harlow, of course, partner, portfolio manager, as well. Uh, shows HiFi Hi-Fi Radio each and every Saturday at 640 in Toronto. I'm Wolfgang Klein, lead portfolio manager for the Wolf on Bay Street. You stay tuned now.
0: Want to make more money? Stay tuned for more Hi-Fi Radio on 640 Toronto.
1: Of the U.S. central bank, Mr. Powell. Yep, he is on a fight the war against inflation. I'm surprised we haven't seen that headline yet on the U.S. television media. The war on this and the war on that, the war on inflation. But it appears that they are fighting a very aggressive war on inflation. Um, Jeff Blanco, our head of foreign exchange, is graciously spending some time with us this evening. You know, Jeff, I want to throw out there: uh, we have had virtually zero inflation for roughly two decades, about 20 years. The world became flat. Uh, Deflation was exported out of Asia with cheaper prices. Men's suits have not changed price in 20 years. Cars barely budged. Uh, When it comes to technology, prices stayed flat. However, every time you upgraded, you got so much more uh, for your money. So hence, again, I consider that deflationary. Uh, all of a sudden, you wake up one day and uh, a war breaks out in, uh, in, in the Ukraine as, as the Russians invade and murder uh, innocent civilians, and inflation rears its head. Uh, obviously, there was a lot leading up to it. You had COVID, and you had central banks giving out money. Uh, if you want to start a fire, that's the way to do it. Hand everyone a can of gasoline, and uh, one, two, three, throw in a match. And that's sort of what has happened. But I, I, I have trouble... Seeing the world go from zero to eight percent inflation uh, and stay there. Um, Mr. Blanco, you know more about inflation and rate policy than I do. Can you please speak to that and give us some some of your own forecasts as to how you see this whole interest rate cycle playing out? Because ultimately, Jack, my partner, is waiting for the central bank to pivot. We want to see Powell back down.
4: Um. So I think you got to look at like the the Russian invasion of Ukraine is one thing that impacted um, the so-called supply chains and the price of oil. But I think we talked about this briefly the last time I was on. But there's there was, has been, if you want to talk about wars, there's been a war against fossil fuels started several years ago in terms of the CSG yep. movement. Um, so the price of oil was going up. The price of oil goes into absolutely everything. Um, whether you're transporting your food across the country, whether you're you know you're trying to manufacture something in your plants it all includes the price of oil um, if that doesn't go down um then it's hard to see how inflation is going to drop with it um i guess you can look at base effects from year over year one thing goes up 25 percent this year and only goes up two percent right. the next year then you say it's two percent inflation but it's not really correct well, um yeah, so enough, yeah so it you know I just don't see. I don't see anything on the horizon right now that's going to that's going to uh, to stop the cost of input for anything you buy. Whether, as I said, everything you buy in the grocery store has got to come from somewhere. It's got to be well, year over yeah. year
1: change does matter. And so, if we get if year over year change in inflation then gets back down to two percent, uh, will Powell back down? Um,
4: I guess if it's sustainable um, at two percent and. And in theory, you know, there's another like the Fed has uh, the money printing really started in earnest in 08 after the great financial crisis of 08. And it really never backed down. Um, And the Fed saw its balance sheet and every other central bank balance sheet expand. Fed's got up to nine trillion dollars. And there's a lot of money sloshing around out in the system. And it's going to take a while for that to get
3: to get back to normal. So,
1: Jack, Jack, you want to, want to jump in here with with Jeff?
3: Sure. Uh, we kicked off the segment talking about uh, you know the European Union. Um, maybe Jeff, you could speak to how you see uh, this playing out, uh, especially with rising interest rates and aggressively rising interest rates. Um, both in the European economy but more so just with the Euro um, currency in particular, because obviously they have a very strong North that's very dependent on uh, exports, but uh, you have a a very weak over indebted South, you know, Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain. How do you see this playing out in the economy as they raise rates? And I see a lot of stress uh, potentially coming into the system because of it. We saw it back in 2011 with the European debt crisis. I think they have more debt now, so how how does this play out? Um, just a couple of years ago they were uh, most of their debt was actually negative interest rates um, and I think this week they raised by seventy five basis points three quarters of a percent. Um, it's a new and uncharted territory for a lot of these economies
4: the growth the growth in the debt disparity between the various regions of Europe has been a problem since the euro was introduced. It's always been an issue. Most of the periphery had to lie. Um, to get into the eurozone in terms of their level of debt, their deficits, et cetera, um still a problem, and it bothers the ECB a lot as we've seen the one of the things they're mainly concerned about is is keeping the peripheral spreads from blowing out you know for the weaker countries like uh, Italy, et cetera Portugal, Spain um, It's a problem for sure uh, and it's one of the it's one of the things once again that keeps you know leaning on the eurozone um, and their potential for economic growth in my opinion. A tough thing to uh it's a tough thing to change
3: right and in a rising interest rate environment um it it worse what, what yeah what, what's the long-term prediction for the euro because i don't I don't see it very favorable at all
4: no it's like i said as i said earlier on like the all-time low for the euro just after its launch was in the low 80s and we're really not that far away from it um they'll all think the all-time low for the great british pound is like 106 or something and in Um, Once again, we're not that far from those levels, and I I don't see a reason to, um, at this point in time, to change those long-term views. Um, Now, there's lots of things in relation to the Eurozone that are of interest. Um, There's been a massive outflow from the Eurozone uh, from a fixed income investment perspective into mostly U.K., U.S., and Canada because of the rate differentials, and they ran negative rates. You know, two-year yields in in Europe were negative 80 basis points forever. if we get to a point in yields between U.S., Canada, and Europe where they get closer, and you see a flood back into that market, um, that may help support the euro. That may be one, maybe one of the things that uh, that is uh, which has been a negative for it over the years, which turns into a positive. I don't see that happening anytime in in the near future. But if they call the terminal rate in Eurozone two percent, we're almost seventy. We're basically seventy-five basis points away from that. Um, you know, maybe we get some support on reinvestment in the Eurozone from that, but that, I think that will depend on, on what happens with their oil and gas situation.
1: The show, my friend, is Hi-Fi Radio, and it has come to an end for a moment. We shall be back next Saturday on 640 in Toronto. I am Wolfgang Klein, Jeff Blanco, Managing Director of Foreign Exchange at Canacord. A delight to have you on the show this weekend. Jack Hardo, as always excellent job uh, teeing up the guests. My friends, stay safe. Any questions about money, WolfgangKlein.com is all you have to do is get to that site, and we will take care of every little question you may have anytime, anytime. Jack and Arrow are with you. My friends, thank you very much for your time. Be well